Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Wednesday, February 7th, day 124 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel dan here with our diplomatic correspondent, Lizer Behrman, and health reporter, René Gert-Zand. Hello to you both. Good morning. Hi, Amanda. A proposed hostage release deal is being debated, with Hamas's demands very far from what Israel has stated it will accept. Laser will weigh in. Where have the medications gone that were sent into the Strip for the hostages? We'll hear more. The Argentinian president landed on Tuesday in Israel, and he announced that he would be moving Argentina's embassy to Jerusalem. Rene is here, and we'll learn about how the war is influencing Israelis' dreams. All this and much, much more when we're back. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning, without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. First, some headlines. The IDF said ground troops continue to raid Hamas sites across the Gaza Strip as the Israel Air Force and Navy strike targets belonging to the terror group. President Emmanuel Macron is holding a ceremony today paying tribute to the French victims of the attack by Hamas against Israel on October 7th. The U.S. House of Representatives narrowly voted against impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas, the Jewish Homeland Security Secretary, after a process that a number of Jews Jewish groups and the White House said was marred by anti-Semitism. Some good Israeli news. The water level at the Sea of Galilee rose by another five centimeters, two inches yesterday as a result of rains. But definitely the top headline of the day is the Hamas ceasefire proposal. In response to a proposal sent last week by Qatari and Egyptian mediators that was backed by the United States and Israel, Hamas has proposed a three-phase ceasefire plan that would lead to an end to the war. Now, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has repeatedly declared that the war will not end without total victory over Hamas. So, Laser, let's first talk about what we know about the Hamas plan. So this was reported today by Reuters. They uh, say they saw a draft of the document. Um, let me just say outright that this includes things that Israel cannot agree to. But uh, let's start with some of the specifics. This is, a, as you said, it's a three-phase deal. In the first phase, Hamas would release uh, women, men under 19, uh, the old and the sick, and would also release a number of Palestinian women and children, or all Palestinian women and children from Israel's jails. In the second phase, the male hostages would be released, 
And the third phase would see uh, bodies swapped. So we talked to, uh, this week about a New York Times report that um, at least th- they're saying 32 and possibly 20 more of the Israeli hostages are dead. So they would be uh, swapped in the final phase. And Israel, uh, Hamas expects the a permanent ceasefire to be agreed on um, by the end of this process. Now, each phase would last 45 days. So we're talking about a four and a half month pause in the war, basically uh, shutting down the war. And uh, Hamas has another demand, which I think will be a non-starter for Israel, which is the release of 1,500 prisoners. And it wants to take a third of those, so 500 prisoners, and select them of a list of Palestinian prisoners who have life sentences in Israel. That would mean a lot of terrorists with blood on their hands, obviously, um, something that I'm sure Israel is not going to say yes to. Uh, We're starting to see reports in Hebrew language media of anonymous Israeli officials saying that they can obviously not agree to a ceasefire. No surprise there. Now, we live in the Middle East, and as I learned early on from my Israeli husband, when any kind of negotiation is on the table, you start with no, and then you move on from there. Do you see that there is any opening for negotiation, however, since the sides are so far apart? Yeah, I mean, negotiations are happening. That's why Secretary of State Blinken is doing his tour in the region right now, and he's in Israel right now. The big things which will have to be bridged are this ceasefire versus end to the war, uh, or a temporary ceasefire versus a permanent ceasefire. And a way to get over that would be to do an extended ceasefire of a couple months, which Hamas expects to harden into a permanent ceasefire, but Israel will not um, commit to that. And another one is, is who these... Uh, Palestinian prisoners are, how many terrorists get released. We've seen in the past, especially in the Gilad Shalit deal, which released Yichia Sinwar, that Israel is willing to release terrorists. The question is how many and um, and who they are. Let's not forget about the fact that Israel, uh, Netanyahu has uh, a right flank of his coalition that he relies on to stay in power. Ben Gvir and Smotrich, who will make life difficult for him and their threats of leaving, whether they're open or whether they're quiet, um, will uh, certainly make him push him in a more in a tougher direction, and will uh, make things even make it even harder to find uh, a solution that satisfies both sides. Laser, what would happen if Israel were to say no? We do not accept this, and we don't want to actually pursue a ceasefire arrangement or any kind of hostage release plan at this time. What would happen diplomatically for Israel? I think they're going to say no to the to you know to the conditions from Hamas, and that's fine. Uh, there are no none of Israel's allies are calling for a permanent ceasefire. Um, not the United States either. So Israel is under no pressure to do that. If it said it's not willing to talk at all, I think most of the pressure would come domestically. That would mean that it's not really willing to pursue a hostage release deal, and that would anger the families and and their allies who have been demonstrating. Um, yeah, so I, I think the fact that Israel is willing, certainly willing to talk and is cer- certainly serious about these negotiations and was and, and accepted the the uh, framework that was hammered out in Paris last week between U.S., Israel, Qatar, and Egypt, I think uh, shows its seriousness. I think Israel's um, partners in the region and even Qatar, which isn't really a partner, show that uh, certainly Israel is, is, is willing to talk and is someone that they can wor- work with. Um, now it goes down to the details, and and Hamas uh, wants to preserve its survival and wants to preserve its role in the Gaza Strip, so that permanent ceasefire is of critical, of existential importance to it. 
But Israel, uh, I think, is in no mood and is, there's no way that it can accept an end to the war that leaves Hamas in power. That would mean a defeat for Israel. Um, so the two sides are far apart. Again, it would have to be some sort of ceasefire that each side can interpret differently. And then, uh, at, you know, as, as we get deeper into the ceasefire, then, then each side can make its decisions there after there's been a significant swap. As we've been reporting all week, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in the region, and there are reports that our Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rebuffed a meeting with him, and instead he'll be meeting with the IDF Chief of Staff Herzi Halevi. Do you know anything about this? I spoke to American officials last night, and they said that he was going to meet Netanyahu, who was going to meet the War Cabinet. So as far as what they're saying, that, that seems to be on track. Um, it's hard to imagine that Netanyahu would would rebuff the U.S. Secretary of State, especially at a time like this. Um, but yeah, Blinken is pushing hard. It shows how serious even the Americans are uh, about put, finding some pause to this war, improving the humanitarian situation, getting hostages out. Um, he was in Egypt. He was in Doha, Qatar. Those are the two main Arab uh, mediators. Uh, they're serious about this. They see that there is some. There's plenty of uh, reason for optimism, even if the sides are far apart. If there's a little bit more or a lot more American diplomatic m muscle, then another uh, swap can be arranged, and, and they can work on getting this very complicated and very th the situation that has upset voters in America is certainly. Uh, something that countries around the world want to see wrapped up, they can get it so it's less of a problem in the region, it's less of a problem in the United States, improve the humanitarian situation. But again, uh, the fact that Israel says it's not going to end the war, um, I think is going to create disagreement down the road. But for now, if they can get a long ceasefire and many of the hostages out, that's a win for the U.S. And many in Israel would, would say that that's a win here as well. Now, the previous agreement with Hamas was over sending medications to the hostages, and weeks after medicine was delivered to the Gaza Strip for the hostages, the countries involved in the very complex operation still do not know whether the drugs eventually reach the captives. Renee, tell us a little bit more about this. So going back to January 16th, that's when it was announced that Qatar had been able to work out this agreement between the, the different sides. Uh, and France was involved in purchasing a large amount of the medications. And basically, it was going to be a swap of medications for the hostages for uh, a large amount of uh, medical supplies and humanitarian aid for uh, for Gaza. And uh, supposedly it was supposed to, this was all supposed to happen, the, the uh, swap was supposed to happen on the 17th, and then everything was sort of radio silence, uh, even though Israel had demanded that part of this be uh, definitive visual proof that the uh, medications had reached the, the hostages, that has not come through. Um, now, the latest, as of just the last day or two, France is pressuring Qatar to find out what happened. Uh, there were reports that the medications did enter Gaza, but from that point on, we don't know what happened. Um, and I have spoken, to, you know, tried to get information from the prime minister's office, from the IDF, from COGAT, from the uh, the mis uh, hostages and missing families forum, and 
either people are not talking to me or they honestly don't have any new information on what's going on. And it's been three weeks. Laser, do you have any more information on this? Because I know that, that France, you've been following how uh, France is dealing with it. And I just have to add that if this is uh, the result of the previous deal, it, it might make some some people not want to strike a deal with Hamas again. But Laser, do you have any more information about the medicines? Yeah, the French don't know what happened. They said uh, yesterday, as they did, no, it was two days ago. They said two days ago, as they have um, at the, you know, when the, when the medicine went into the Gaza Strip, that it's not their responsibility to uh, confirm that it reached the hostages, even though they're the ones that paid for it. Um, they say that it's Qatar is, is the one who is in touch with Hamas, and it's their responsibility, and they've made promises. Um, but France doesn't know where the medicine is, like Israel. Um, which is you know, kind of embarrassing for everybody. I don't think it gets in the way of a hostage deal, but it certainly will get in the way of another targeted deal like this for medicine. Um, and uh, you know, the, the fact that there was no mechanism in place to to confirm where it went, I think, it just shows some of the, um, the lack of seriousness or lack of preparation in getting this deal done. Okay, and uh, Lisa, I know you need to leave, but before you do, tell us a little bit about the visit of the Argentinian president and his bombshell announcement. Sure, uh, it's President Javier Malay's first bilateral trip abroad as president. He did go to, to Davos, where he scolded the elite there for uh, being socialists and for being responsible for a lot of the economic problems in the world. That's kind of par for the course for him. He's uh, he rose to fame as a, a very flamboyant uh, radio personality and economist. Um, he is very, very pro-Israel. He's also very connected to Judaism. He has his own personal rabbi who he brought with him, who's probably going to be Argentina's ambassador to Israel. And as he said during the campaign, <clears throat> when he got off the plane, Malay said that he is going to move Argentina's uh, embassy to Jerusalem, which would make the sixth embassy in Jerusalem after the U.S., Papua New Guinea, Honduras, Guatemala, and Kosovo. Uh, so he's certainly gotten a very warm welcome here by the foreign minister. He met the president yesterday as well. He's going to meet Netanyahu today. And he'll, he will go with President Herzog down to Kibbutz Niroz, which was one of the kibbutzim that was very, very badly hit by Hamas on October 7th. So it's a bit of good news, especially in Latin America, where there's a lot of leaders who have been very critical of Israel um, and, and, you know, during the war and even before. So this is certainly a very positive development uh, for Israel. Israel, thank you so much for all of your updates. Thank you. We'll go to a short break. Do you appreciate Times of Israel podcasts and our truly independent journalism reported directly from wartime Israel? Has the Times of Israel become important for your understanding of Israel and the Jewish world during this time of rising global anti-Semitism? If so, please join others like you who support our work by joining the Times of Israel community. For as little as $6 per month, you'll get an ad-free experience of our site and apps, exclusive TOI community content, and most importantly, you'll become partners of ours in ensuring media coverage of Israel that's professional, factual, and fair. For more information and to join, just go to timesofisrael.com slash join. Okay, and we're back. 
New research indicates that a quarter of us here in Israel are experiencing dreams so scary and vivid that we're waking up at night. I mean, I always wake up at night, but these dreams are waking us up at night as well. And you spoke recently to an expert in dreams. Tell us what he said. Right. So uh, I spoke with Dr. Udi Bonstein, who is a psychologist. He's the head of psychology at uh, the Galilee Medical Center. And he has been interested in dreams for quite a long time. He's written um, a book on them. And uh, before the war, he had studied 700 people and, you know, learned about their process of dreaming. And uh, so after the war, he, he or after October 7th, he wanted to compare that data to 160 new respondents to uh, surveys. And uh, interestingly, he worked, uh, just as an aside, he worked with his daughter on the study, who is an undergraduate student in psychology. And uh, the focus of the study was not the content of the dreams, but rather the process of dreaming. And as you mentioned, uh, 25% of the respondents said that they were waking up at night with extremely bad nightmares that you know that woke them up uh, this happened at least once once a month for them and this is 15% higher than before the war um, there was also a lot of uh, information coming in about extremely sensory dreams people were hearing very loud sounds they were hearing explosions screaming sirens so everything that we're hearing you know people were hearing outside in their you know waking lives were 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 coming into the dreams there was also a lot of something that is called paramnesia which is the blurring between dreaming and reality in wakefulness. So people um, might know of like deja vu. It's sort of that feeling of, wait a minute, was that real or was that not real? And what he found was this was happening to people both while they were dreaming and while they were awake. They had this confusion uh, between uh, what was real and what wasn't. And uh, he said, which he said something very positive. He said, despite all this um, concern about the change in dreams, he said that there is a way for people to try to gain control over the situation and uh, get better sleep. And he says this is done through auto-suggestion, which means you sort of give, you you have control over what you're doing while you're asleep. So for instance, the first step would be to be able to teach yourself to wake up when you're having a dream, a bad dream, so that you're not as shaken emotionally by it. Then the next step, uh, once you're able to accomplish that, is to be able to direct your dream while you're dreaming. Um, and that is called having lucid dreams, so that you're able to change the direction of the narrative of the dream without waking up and you get a good night's sleep. So he said there are different ways. He says, you know, if you read Hebrew, you can read his book. He has good tips for this. There are uh, videos on YouTube on how to do this. There are all different ways. And he said some people are able to do this themselves. Um, and uh, so that was really an interesting look at uh, what's happening in our to us while we're sleeping right now. 
On Friday, Israel is marking Family Day, and you're preparing a piece that uh, has not yet been published about how pregnant war widows are faring. Give us a little bit about uh, what's happening with them today. So my, my story, Amanda, actually focuses mainly on a new program called Litzidech, which means uh, by your side. And it's being offered by the IDF Widows and Orphans Organization. Uh, it's a completely new program, uh, never been offered before. And I, I asked, you know, there have been, you know, I asked them, I, I said there have been uh, pregnant widows before, uh, in Israel, and they said, "Well, we have never had pregnant uh, war widows on this scale since, you know, 1973, for instance." But the organization did not or did not exist at that time. It only started in the 1990s. So this is the first time that they have had. They really said, "We have to address this." There are currently more than 220 new widows from the war uh, and 500 over 500 new orphans of them of the widows 25 to 30 are pregnant at this time and of course this is a, a changing number as as there are unfortunately more pregnant widows and uh, women are giving birth so the program very quickly it follows the women while they're pregnant, while they're giving birth, and then for three months postpartum, provides psychosocial support, both individual and group, financial support uh, for uh, baby supplies, baby equipment, and uh, also each woman is being uh, assigned a a midwife or even a couple of midwives uh, to accompany them through and mentor them through the whole process. This is unusual in Israel. Those who know how this how things go here in Israel, you usually just, when you have a baby, you get to the hospital and whichever midwife is there delivers your baby. Here you get sort of a personal midwife who is with you through the whole process. Um, and I, for the story, interviewed a uh, mother of uh, mother of three from Be'eri, who told me her horrific story of how her husband was called up uh, to the reserves as soon as things started on October seventh, but he couldn't even make it out of the safe room in their ho- in their home. He was shot through the door by terrorists in front of the family, and she is now with the young ch- her three young children and expecting her fourth. Uh, at a, a hotel in the Dead Sea, at the Dead Sea, and she's going to have to, you know, start the baby's life at a hotel. Um, and then I also spoke to a young woman, 27 years old, from Kibbutz Erez, who was expecting her first baby, and uh, she lost her husband on October 7th as he ran out to defend the kibbutz with other other members of the kibbutz, and fortunately. No one, none of the terrorists ended up entering the kibbutz, but it was at the cost of the life of her husband and and many others. Four months to the war, these stories don't stop. Renee, thank you so much for bringing your insights. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow. 
שלום. <שלום>